We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to BuzzBeat Radio, your premier Charlotte Hornets show. All right, welcome in, everybody. Episode 61 of BuzzBeat Radio. Um, We're going to cover a lot of stuff today, mostly the coaching search. Sounds like the Hornets have their two finalists, uh, Ettore Messina and David Fisdale. Um, we're going to cover a little bit of the draft here, give you guys our top five prospects um, uh, personally, and then we might even talk a little playoff hoops. You know, we got got on here on Skype before we, uh, you know, Richie pressed record, and all we did was talk playoff hoops for like 15 minutes. We're like, okay, why don't we just do this <laughs> during the show? So uh, thanks again for being back in. Do not forget, we are a proud member of the Almighty Baller Podcast Network. Um and also home, queencityhoops.com. Uh, and also don't forget about our good friends, sportschannel8.com. Their radio show on 99.9 in the Triangle area continues on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to noon. BG, give us a little update. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, show number three in the books, Saturday, yesterday, the uh, the 21st of April. It's been going going well so far. Uh, a lot of fun. Shows are going by quickly. And... Um, Nah, it's it's been it's been really a really neat experience so far. So looking to keep that going into, um, you know, into this further into the spring and into the summer. We've been sort of all over the place in terms of what we're talking about, which is exactly what I want. That's awesome, awesome to hear. So make sure you guys go check that out Saturday mornings again. Saturday mornings, 10 a.m. to noon, 99.9 in the Triangle area. You can find them online too. So. Um, and then Queen City Hoops, just real quickly, we're going to have a lot of draft coverage coming. There's already uh, a draft page launched, and so right now it's kind of like a link dump. Uh, there's just a lot of different links that, uh, you know, Brian and I did a piece of Sports Channel 8 covering ACC prospects a few months back. Um, you know, we've had a few episodes here recently talking a lot of different draft prospects, so if you haven't listened to those, you can find there's a, um, those there on that page. Uh, and also, I'm going to have a little mock draft uh, that I'm going to do leading up to the June, uh, what is it, June 22nd draft? I think that is. Anyways, I'm going to do a mock draft, hopefully get about five or six in. The first one's going to drop next week, and then Richie, myself, Brian, we're going to have a lot of 
prospect uh, versus prospect pieces coming. Very similar to what we did last year, if you guys remember. So just keep an eye on queencityhoops.com. We got you covered for all your draft coverage leading up to this summer. With that said, Richie, what's new in your world? Do you want me to share the big news? To the oh, world? I, oh, yes, yes. There's a ton new in your world. Yeah, share the news. <laughs> if okay. You're comfortable. Yeah, this is this is this is going out to the world here. Yeah, uh, my wife and I are expecting our our first baby in November, November third to be exact. Which is funny. That was her her due date. Uh, she wasn't born on November third, but that was her due date. So we uh we found that out and uh, we told our relatives and we kind of told our uh, coworkers and some of our friends uh, about a week ago. So yeah, that's that's new in my world. So. My life's about to change in November. <laughs> Your life's about to change tomorrow when the world hears this. That's what's about to change. <laughs> Look, that is awesome news. Everybody, let's just take three seconds. Everybody give it three claps, three claps. Big, great stuff to Richie. Congratulations. So he actually, <laughs> Brian and I were kind of going back and forth. We were texting earlier in the week. Richie posted on Instagram this, just, this picture of like a <laughs> cinnamon roll in an oven. And I was, I didn't really think that much of it. I was just like, all right. It must be a really tasty cinnamon roll that he had this yeah. morning, you know. And then uh, so <laughs> Brian and I were talking about it, and then Richie said the next day, he's like, "Yeah, I kind of threw that out there to see, you know, who picked up on it." Of course, not us. Every yeah, girl it was all the women, women. all the women. Um, they 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 figured. Well, I, actually, some of the women didn't even figure it out. So some of my uh, women coworkers didn't understand it. They just kind of scrolled past it, thought nothing of it. My wife wanted to wait a day to announce it. It's like, let me just throw out something subtle, see if anyone picks up on it. She's like, okay, don't don't put any captions, don't put anything in there. Just you can do that and see if anyone picks up on it. So maybe just like a handful of people figured it out, but most of them definitely were women. I think we've become so accustomed to just seeing food on social media, right? You know, whether it be Instagram <laughs> or Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook, people people like to blog, microblog their eating experiences. So. I assumed I, I and Richie. I think the caption was "I'm not a foodie" or whatever. Right. But I just cruised past it, thinking, oh, "Man, he's really into cinnamon buns." Or <laughs> I am. I, am. <laughs> I mean, go for it, dude. <laughs> yeah. oh, man. Well, that's Richie. That's awesome. Um, the future of Busby is is almost upon us. Um, <laughs> future Busby podcaster. Um, so no, no. But seriously, we're we're all really excited. Uh, it's awesome news and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, man, my, my sister just had a kid like two months ago. And like when I saw that kid, I was like, like how I felt after that. I was like, whoa, that was mm-hmm. that was really cool. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine what you guys are feeling right now. So congrats, man. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Let's uh, let's jump in here. So the obvious news uh, yesterday, Woj lets the world speaking of letting the world know Woj lets the world know yesterday that the Hornets, it, it seems like they've kind of reached their finalist here. Uh, for the head coaching vacancy. Uh, Ettore Messina, who coached, uh, has been in San Antonio since 2014 with Greg Popovich, uh, coached uh, the Spurs in Game 3 after the very sad news of Pop's wife passing. Uh, and then we'll also coach, we're recording this on Sunday, so he'll also coach Game 4 today uh, against uh, Golden State. So he's a finalist. You know, Woj's report said you know, these two guys would be interviewing in the coming days. So my guess is that Messina is not going to interview until, ne- you know, next week, Monday, Tuesday. I can't imagine it would even maybe be till midweek with the Spurs trying to finish up their season here. And then also David Fisdale, um, obviously the Memphis Grizzlies head coach that was fired earlier this season after a 7-12 and start. 
in Memphis, but you know had a great season last year, forty three and thirty nine in his first season as a head coach. Uh, you know, touted as a players kind of coach. I mean, just really, really good with the guys uh, in the locker room. Um, so, with that said, let's throw it to you, Richie, here first. When you narrow it down to these two guys, what comes to your mind with positives and negatives with each, and where would you lean if it was your decision? Well, I mean, first off, both of them are very, very experienced when it comes to assistant coaches, head coaching positions. Uh, they definitely have a lot of experience. Obviously, uh, Ettore Messina definitely has more head coaching experience, but both of these guys, uh, they, they started their career young, uh, at a young age, and, and coached their way up. I think... They're a little bit different. I think, you know, Fizdale leans more on defense. Um, I definitely think that he is more relatable than Messina. Obviously, he's American, so that, that culture difference there, you wonder if Messina, coming from a different culture, we've heard that he's a little bit intense. You wonder if he's going to be able to relate to the players or if he'll rub them the wrong way. But you also know, coming from Europe, you know, where they don't rely on athleticism, you know that on the offensive end, Messina definitely has some uh, tricks up his sleeve. He knows what to do. He knows how to run an offense because over there, they don't have these athletic players that could just get by. You know, there's very it's very team-oriented on both ends of the ball, but you know coming from that Spurs offense where it's quick passing, uh, making cuts, you can definitely see how that would translate over if he were to become uh, a Charlotte Hornet coach. Um, he is a little bit older than Fizdale, so that that's that's something too. I don't know if you ever look into that. I don't know. I don't know which way I lean. I think that Fizdale definitely is more relatable, um, but he also had that fallout with Marcus Gasol, so which is really the reported reason as to why kind of Memphis let him go. I think I probably do lean Fizdale just because he has experience as a head coach in the NBA. Uh, but again, Messina definitely has the, has an experience as an assistant coach in the NBA. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think I probably lean slightly towards Fizdale, but I definitely wouldn't be upset if uh, we went Messina. Yeah, Fizdale, Fizdale is certainly an, an interesting coaching target. He was so well thought of before he got the Memphis job. And <clears throat> Richie, as you noted, he clearly has this incredible reputation around the NBA as a guy that's worked in Miami and in Golden State and in Atlanta and started his started coming up in the in the film room, but basically has covered a lot of ground in the NBA, covered a lot of tracks, and has met a lot of players because of it. It is interesting that the one all-star he ever was a head coach for, he beefed with for the entire season. And ultimately that's what cost him his job after 20 games or 19 games in his second season. But Gasol's sort of a different personality right. type to begin with, too. So you know, it's probably not too surprising a head coach and, and Gasol maybe butted heads a little bit, um, especially a guy, a, a new head coach, too. It's interesting to go back and look at some of the stuff Fisdale put together in Memphis. Spencer, like you said, 43 wins in 2016, 2017, top 10 defense that year. Uh, one of 15 teams, along with the Hornets in 2016, 2017, with a positive net rating. And um, he's certainly well thought of as an after timeout play designer. And, uh, you know, some of the other stuff that interests me with Fizdale a little bit, too, is just how he used Gasol, who uh, number three in post-up touches per game, number one in the NBA in, po- in elbow touches per game, almost nine uh, per game that season two years ago. So it makes you wonder, if in, you know, maybe he wouldn't bring the same sort of offensive approach to Charlotte, hypothetically, if he were hired as coach, because Gasol is a unique player. But you could see maybe guys like Cody Zeller, Willie Aaron Gomez facilitating from the elbows, Gasol style, and how that, that might look kind of cool in in Charlotte. 
Uh, but, you know, you've got to like a guy like Messina that's also worked in the past with Mitch Kupchak, uh, was a consultant on Mike Brown's staff in Los Angeles with the Lakers in 2011, 2012. And he interviewed for and was thought of as one of the top candidates for the Lakers job in 2016 when Mitch Kupchak was running that search. So that's an interesting connection. That job ultimately went to Luke Walton. Like you said, Messina's an older coach. So, you know, it's interesting if the Hornets do decide to – if they do decide to go down the path of a rebuild next season, you know, who would you rather have a younger guy like Fizdale and older guy like Messina? Perhaps it doesn't matter at all, but I think there's some interesting stuff with Fizdale. I don't feel like I know enough about either guy right. to make some sort of value judgment on who the obvious candidate should be. Fizdale does interest me a little bit coming from Miami, which is one of the top organizations, in all the NBA and you wonder if his player connections can maybe help you land some guys, not big-name free agents, but some guys on the margins that would maybe play at a discount or a slight discount to, to be coached by Fisdale. But we don't even know what the roster is going to look like for Charlotte next season. So for me, it's it's tough to even make some sort of grand um, proclamation on who I think the, the top the top coach should be. It seems like both these candidates have. Yeah, I mean, I think both of you guys said it well. Um, you know, to start with Messina, I mean, this guy has – won everywhere he's been you know he's won four Euroleague titles um you know he's coached in two different clubs in Italy coached for the CSK Moscow one of the best international clubs and then Real Madrid his stint in Real Madrid did not go very well uh and that was kind of the uh transition to the NBA or just before it but I mean this guy's in the Italian Basketball Hall of Fame um one of the you know top 50 most influential of basketball minds in European basketball hoops history. So, I mean, he's very well regarded over there. Uh, and you know, coming from San Antonio's system and obviously being hired by Pop in 2014, like it, it, all the dominoes line up for you to tell you exactly what people in the basketball community globally think about him. I mean, he's a brilliant basketball mind mm-hmm. and that there's probably no debating that. But, Richie, you brought it up early. Like, <clears throat> will – Will he be able to connect um, with guys in the NBA, stars? NBA is different, right? It's different than European basketball. Brian, you said it. You know, Marcus Saul is a little bit different of a personality, and he probably would have meshed better with a guy like Messina than he did Fisdale. But you wonder if, you know, Fisdale is, or excuse me, Messina is going to be able to connect with guys and, and be that head coach presence um, that you have to be, uh, that, that Fisdale will be able to be, right? Like, I, I look at a guy like Messina like I looked at Blatt after that all went down in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he had to coach under you know over LeBron James, which is not a real – that's a totally different uh, kind of deal. But you look at Messina and you think, really, really good assistant coach, great X's and O's guy, great situation. I mean, any situation you put him in in a basketball game, he can probably coach his way out of it. But can that guy communicate with guys behind closed doors, get the most out of guys – when you're not out in practice coaching, right? Can he tear somebody down and then when you get into the locker room, pull them into the office later and say, hey, man, um, you know, build you back up. You know, what what can I do for you? You know you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of stuff that I think Fizdale will be really, really, really good at because he, you can just tell he connects with players. You can tell from his time in Miami how much Wade liked him, Bosh liked him, LeBron liked him. You could watch his body language on the bench. He almost looked like a player. You know, on the bench, and so you can you can tell just by watching him coach, literally, why the players respect him. Um, 
and you can just tell from a body language standpoint, you know, the similarities. So, you know, I, th- I think Fisdale is the choice here. Um, I just think he's a better head coaching fit. But I think Messina would probably be – is probably a, a little bit sharper of a tool in a basketball mind from an X's and O standpoint. So it's really about what you want. Do you want a guy who's going to come to your locker room and, and, and rally the guys and be a player's first coach that they respect and, and they always have you know their attention to? Or do you want a guy who really knows the game at the highest level ever and has a lot of experience? Richie, you brought it up, the age difference. I think Messina's 59, mm-hmm. uh, Fisdale's 40. So, you know, it's quite an age variance there. You know, what are you looking for? And then Brian said it too. Like, are we talking about a rebuild? A coach bring, we're bringing in a coach for a rebuild? Or are we talking about bringing in a coach and, you know, hey, we want to compete right away? That also plays into, into this decision. So there's a lot of different angles to tackle, but I, I would lean Fisdale. I just think he's a better fit as a head coach in the NBA. Eileen Fisdale, too, and I think Brian brought up a good point about the situation that you're coming into. You know, I think Fisdale probably would be more appropriate for the situation that we're currently in because he can relate to those players and build that, you know, continuity among the team. I think Messina might be better suited for a team that's kind of already uh, a little bit more experienced and already together because he might not have that personal relationship connections that he builds throughout the time uh, but like you know, like you said Spencer he has the better basketball mind and and when we've seen that how he's um, been very successful over in Europe he's also coached the uh, Italian national team there's also another uh, North Carolina connection that I found out with Messina I mean other than the connection at Lakers with the Mitch Kupchak he actually um, when Dean Smith took his teams over to Italy he would be mm. like a translator for uh Dean Smith and kind of help him out when Dean Smith took North Carolina over to Italy for us, like some camps or whatever. So there, there's a connection there. Very he's going to get the job now. Then. Yep. There's Literally. always yeah, a Carolina yeah. connection somewhere. <laughs> um, that's, that's actually, that's a great, that's a great fact, Richie. Uh, yeah. That's very interesting. And I mean, I think UNC has had on, on when Dean Smith was the coach had rosters that had, had some sort of Italian connections too. I, I could be wrong about that, but um, I'm pretty sure they've recruited recruited internationally a little bit in terms of that as well. So one of the things that's interesting with Fisdale, just looking at some of the other offensive numbers from that 2016-2017 uh, Grizzlies team, they shot 27 three-pointers per game, uh, 18 per game the year prior, so that was a big jump. But it's still sort of crazy to see just how much yeah, how how these numbers are just going up every year. Like the Wizards took twenty six and a half this season, and that was twenty third in the NBA. So the Grizzlies two years ago with Fisdale, thirty two percent of their field goal attempts were three pointers, thirteenth uh, in the league in three point attempt rate. Thirteen and a half percent of their possessions were uh, via the pick and roll ball handler, mostly Conley. That was twenty sixth in the NBA. And 11.6% of their possessions were post-ups. That was tops in the NBA. Um, of course, having guys like Marcus Gasol and Zach Randolph, uh, you're, you're going to sort of have a, a team that operates through the post. So something to keep an eye on. Doesn't mean it would transfer over to Charlotte necessarily, but this was a guy that in Memphis, building around the roster he had, low on pick and roll, high on post-ups, but of course, Mike Conley also had a career year, so if Kemba sticks around, mm-hmm. maybe that's something of, of interest, too, for Kemba. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, Brian, to bring it up, because, <clears throat> I mean, as the roster 
is constructed today. Whoever comes in has got Kimball Walker. So, you know, Mike Conley-esque, I guess. And then Dwight Howard, not Mark Gasol-esque, but certainly from a volume standpoint, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, pretty close. So you know, does that – and I think that's the elephant in the room with no matter who's hired. If the Hornets aren't able to get off Dwight and he's on that team next year, how, how is that handled? You know, because I think the elephant in the room is this. He needs less post-ups. And I can't imagine that the brightest minds in basketball can't see that. So if they acknowledge that fact, how is that handled? How, how are those taken away from him? How is this offense uh, built into more of a modern-day offense uh, with you know, more three-pointers taken, more driving kick, you know, uh-huh. as much pick-and-roll for Kimba as possible? I, I just think that's a huge factor. And, yes, you only have Dwight for a year, but a year can go a long, long way if it's mm-hmm. not handled the right way. I mean, it only takes one to ruin a locker room. Um, so I, I think the Dwight Howard – relationship with whoever this next coach is, is is important i can only imagine how that relationship would go with messina i just, I just can't you know imagine messina <laughs> being too thrilled with the way that dwight plays the game and i just could see them butting heads a lot well i could see i mean yes it's a good point i could also see him and fisdale really butting heads though because i don't think fisdale would back down to him you know um i mean i don't think anybody you know that's gonna be a head coach in the nba is really gonna back down that's the wrong way to put it but I mean, Fisdale showed us his colors with Gasol. I mean, those two were going at it. Fisdale was like, no, this is how we're going to do it. And Gasol was like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is how we're going to do it. <laughs> and the front office leaned Gasol, you know, and that's why Fisdale lost his job. But, you know, I hate to break to Dwight Howard, but the front office ain't, ain't leaning Howard if he yeah. starts button heads with whoever comes in. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same situation as Gasol, who, you know, is an all-star at the time. In his in the early stage of what of his max contract extension, as opposed to Dwight, who's not, yeah, is is fact is on a is on an expiring contract. So yeah, not not the same, especially if a new coach is brought in or a new coach will be brought in in the next you know maybe week or so. Yeah, and you, you just gotta you gotta think new GM, new head coach, brand new regime. They're gonna look at this roster and and they're gonna the GM and the coach are going to come to an understanding, okay, this has to change right here, right now. We can't start unless this is gone. You know what I mean? Like That's just usually the way this stuff goes. And then you add the ingredient to that thought of the Hornets already being in cap trouble. And it's almost inevitable to me that the Hornets are going to seriously kick the tires on a pretty big trade this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that's Kimball Walker going. I mean, I, it could be Kid Gilchrist, Cody Zeller by Howard, like any of those trades would be to us, I think, to this team, to this fan base, a big trade. Mm -hmm. And I just can't imagine that they don't – it's going to be hard to get it done because there's no space. There's no cap flexibility out there on the market. It's going to be really hard to get it done. But I I think the Hornets are going to try really hard to do it. And uh, it's just the way this stuff works, man. When you get – when you clean house from top to bottom, which is – that's exactly what's happened here. I mean, we didn't just hire a new coach or getting ready to hire a new coach and hire a new GM. The whole training staff's basically gone. The whole basketball operations, development, scouting, everything has been rebuilt. I mean, they're probably still hiring these positions. I'm sure they haven't filled them all. So you're talking about a completely, a complete overhaul. Just can't imagine there's not some serious reconstruction to the roster this offseason. 
Do you guys think that there's any other candidates out there that they're considering, or do you think it's just these two? Because I, I have some other names in mind that I would like to talk about or just briefly touch upon, but I don't know if necessarily these names are even worthy of talking about because these two names seem to be ones that are the most prominent, I guess, uh, in the news. Well, I'm a not. I'm a 9.9 on a 1 to 10 scale uh, of surprise that Jerry Stackhouse isn't a finalist. I will say yeah. that. Same here. Same here. In fact, like I've got I've got his I, name. I did, yeah. Yeah. I think he's the I thought he was sort of the third candidate until this most the the I guess the tweet from Woj yesterday or on Saturday saying that, you know, they were scheduling interviews with with Fisdale and and Messina. You you got to think you at least try to unless Stackhouse already had had a handshake deal in place somewhere else. You think you'd bring Stackhouse in, right, to at least interview? I would think so. I would think so. I think just, you know, his name being the up and coming coach. Obviously, he's not coached on the NBA level. He's coached uh, assistants with the the Raptors and also in the G League or D League or whatever it was when he was coaching. But um yeah, but I looked at some of his stats with the with the G League team. I don't know if you saw this, Brian, but like it's it's very different. Uh, it's not how you want your team playing in today's game. He's last in pace in both yeah. seasons that he's coached. He's also a very defensive first coach, which is fine. But like it just seems like he's a guy that probably uh, maybe looks after like Greg Popovich, just to slow it down. Defense first uh, doesn't really necessarily translate to uh, how the NBA is going. I mean, he's very successful uh, in those two years. He won a championship, and he also made it to the finals this most recent year. But, uh, you know, it's very defensive-oriented with him, it seems like. Yeah, they were top two both years. He's coached uh, the Raptors 905 G League team. Uh, Top two in defensive efficiency both of those years. A combined record of of seventy and thirty, uh-huh. which is in the in two years of the G League, which is Great. pretty impressive. And the uh, the 2016-2017 team was top five in offensive efficiency and top five in terms of true shooting percentage, fifty seven percent. But like you said, Richie, um, Last you know, not base. not yeah, slower. Um, it, it and he's, yeah, just sorry, and he's go ahead, Brian. A, yeah, 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 just that. <clears throat> but I do think I, look, Toronto's another. I think another. I guess, and right now, I guess we're just talking about uh, Stackhouse as a possible candidate. We can just get into that, I guess. But, you know, spent a year as an assistant coach for the Raptors in 2015, 2016, and was basically advised by some of the other Toronto assistants, including Nick Nurse, who's a guy that's well thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was advised to take the G League job and said, hey, this is the best place. Like, I got way better as, an, mm-hmm. as a coach um, getting work in this league. And, and Stackhouse is a guy that's. I mean, you can you can find these quotes that clearly was not stoked about guys like Derek Fisher and Jason Kidd getting jobs immediately out of playing in the NBA. And he was not able to do that. I think he's motivated. and I think he wants to show a lot of people that he can be a plus NBA coach. And uh, he certainly cut, you know, got it, got some good work done in the G League the last two years. It's interesting too, just to see like Stackhouse. He's still so young. But he played 20 years, almost 20 years in the NBA, over mm-hmm. 16,000 career points. And like the coaches he's been around in his life, lifetime, Dean Smith, Larry Brown, Alvin Gentry, Don Nelson, Rick Carlisle. Like I mean, he's played for, he's worked with Dwayne Casey, who's likely to be the coach of the year in the NBA this season. So maybe that doesn't matter, but that's a lot of amazing coaches that he's he spent the last 20 years of his life around. So, um, and I also like too, to, to note with Toronto, especially because if the Hornets do go down this sort of like tear down path this summer, which we don't know if that's going to happen or if it's even, you know, a serious possibility just because of some of the, the size and length of some of the, the contracts. But 
the Raptors have done an awesome job of having guys utilizing the two-way contracts with Lorenzo Brown this year. And you can see two guys that spent some time playing for Stackhouse in the G League last season. In Siakam, it was only a handful of games, but Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet have been awesome for the Raptors this season. And so, you know, maybe does that, do you think of Stackhouse as being, he, he gets some sort of player development boost to his resume just because guys have played for him um, in the G League and have gone on to have very nice uh, success stories in the NBA this year. So I, I think there's a lot to like with Stack. I'd love to see him brought in as um, a coaching candidate, even though you're probably going to get some of those UNC jokes. You know, I think that's this has been part of the Toronto chain of commands, like him in the G League, and his his infatuation with defense even before he got that job, which you read a lot about out there. Um, before he got the job with um, Raps nine hundred five, is just he he decided he wanted to be a defensive first guy. In the, when he decided, hey, I'm going to be a coach, and I think for Toronto and and Brian, you brought up Nick Nurse, like. They wanted to send him down to D League because, you know, he, he wants to be a defense first guy, which is he was able to do there. You know, he's young, played in the league for tons of years. Probably going to be pretty have a pretty good shot to be a good player development guy. And Toronto wanted it was really important to that organization, at least it seems like, from a ten thousand foot view, to pull guys out of their farm league and use them, which mm-hmm. they've been able to do. And, you know, putting Stackhouse down there and say, okay, develop these guys defensively or, or maybe not just defensively, but make them tough, make mm-hmm. them ready to come up and play NBA basketball. Like Fred Van Fleet is just, he's a, he's a tailor-made example. I mean, not only is he a talented player offensively, I think that guy already got it defensively. He's really good at Wichita State. Mm-hmm. Um, but how tough he is, just watch that guy play, how he gets up into the ball, how he doesn't get knocked back as a small guy. How he's he's just always right in you. You know what I mean? He he's not intimidated, and I think that's kind of been. It seems like that's been um, the DNA for Jerry Stackhouse and the way he wants to develop players. And so, to me, it doesn't mean he's ready for a head coaching job. Um, and I'll be interested to see if he gets one or if he gets one that he feels like he should take. Because if he takes the next job or he takes the son's job or one of these. That's going to – I think you run as much risk there as, as you do opportunity for reward, right? Uh, because you set yourself back. But he has definitely developed in Raptors 905 um, uh, a, a presence in terms of what he's going to be moving for. And that's a defensive first, player development, tough, gritty nose kind of coach. Um, and, you know, good for Toronto giving him that opportunity because, you know, I, I don't know where else in the league that really would have surfaced for him. And the, the name that you guys keep bringing up, and I wish he would be a part of our coaching search. I mean, he may very well be eventually, or maybe he's just not even on the list altogether, is Nick Nurse. I mean, just kind of how he's transformed the Raptors' offense uh, this year in terms of just his style of play. And, and you saw that with him in the G League. He was uh, very offensive-oriented, so the opposite of Stackhouse. Uh, the pace whenever he was uh, coaching those teams in the G League was always tops. Offensive rating was always tops in the league when he was coaching those G League teams, uh, whether it was with the Iowa Energy or the Rio Grande Valley Vipers. The offensive output that they had with those teams were just were just amazing. It was top in the leagues. I think he even won maybe two uh, G League finals uh, while he was down there, but he's obviously spent the last three or four seasons with the, uh, the Raptors. But anyway, we all know about Raptors in terms of how their offensive philosophy has changed, and he has... 
he is probably the biggest reason for that. You know, they shot, they were shooting, I think, like 22 three-point attempts per game in uh, last year, 16-17. And now they're third in the league shooting 33. And the pace increased also from 14th, I'm sorry, from 24th to 14th. So just to see this guy, how he's transformed the Raptors to a a team that's built uh, for modern NBA I wish his name would come up more when it comes to the Charlotte Hornets because I, I kind of like I like him a lot compared to the other three names that we've mentioned, and it just seems like his name's not really out there. Yeah, Nur- the thing that Nurse is lacking <clears throat> over all these other guys we've talked about is um, experience in and around the NBA for long periods of time. He, he coached over in Britain um, yeah, for, 12 for years. a pretty long time. Yeah, 12 years. And, you know, he spent some, some time in the D-League where he definitely had success. He's had, you know, a cup of coffee for a few, uh, let's see, Northern Iowa actually to start his um, career in coaching. And then he was with uh, Iowa State, I think. Is that right? I think – I, I, I don't Iowa know if he actually State. coached there. I think he was supposed to be on the staff, but uh, I think he left before he even even coached a game. I could be wrong. Gotcha. You might be right on that. So, you know, he doesn't have, I mean, he's only been with the Raptors, been there since 2013. Um, but that was really his first experience in the NBA. Yeah. And he yeah. hasn't been able to go anywhere else. I, I think for a guy like Nurse, he's going to have to go somewhere else, be an associate head coach or somewhere in the, you know, on the assistant chain in a different system than Toronto and kind of prove his, mm-hmm. prove his stripes here. Uh, but I agree with you, Richie. I mean, I think what he's done in Toronto, how he's gotten those guys to buy into this new offensive scheme, shoot a lot of threes, drive and kick, use the corners. I mean, if you watch the first two games in the playoffs, it, especially game two, I mean, it's amazing how much differently the Raptors are playing this season than what mm-hmm. they did before. And, and the shots that they're turning down, especially DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, to make that extra pass, to take that extra dribble towards the rim so we can kick it. And to me, they use the corner, you know, without having any stats in front of me, just watching. They got to use the corner as well as any team in the entire NBA. Maybe Miami does it as good as them or, or maybe Miami's very better. good. Yeah, yeah Miami. Miami's good. But I mean, I just haven't seen, I haven't watched a team play like Toronto has with two guys as the main cogs, DeRozan and Lowry. Watched them play the last three seasons. Tons of talent, tons of ability. Lots of potential, but like when it got to playoff time, the guys were going to pound the rock and they were going to go into ISO situations. And then this year, it's like, how how did this happen so fast? And that takes a lot of commitment and a lot of reps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nick Nurse, to your point, Richie, I mean, he we are told that he's kind of the architect of that. So that's a huge, huge plus on his resume. I just don't think he's quite there yet for a head coaching vacancy. Uh, to tie a bow on that real quickly Raptors were six in the NBA this season in um, field goal attempts like frequency from the corners nine percent of their field goal attempts from the corners Miami was fifth and that's up from seven and a half percent the year prior so yeah they've they've clearly and you could trace it back to when Nick Nurse was hired in 2013 um, the year prior in 2012 2013 <clears throat> under 5% of Toronto's field goal attempts are corner threes. Starting in 13-14, his first year on staff, that immediately jumps up to 7.5%. They've been basically inside the top 10 in terms of frequency since then. That is according to uh, the fantastic Cleaning the Glass website. Um, so, yeah, no, you can see the, the, the impact Nurse has had there. 
it is interesting to note, like you said, Spencer, though, he probably needs one more stop on the ladder before he gets a head coaching gig. Yeah. So we should, uh, you know, I think that was a good conversation about the head coaching vacancy. We should hear something, I would think, by uh, this time next weekend at the latest. I mean, I think the Hornets might be ready to announce by next weekend if they get both of these interviews done, you know, early, early this coming week. One more thing of note, and then we'll do um, some draft prospect talk and then talk some playoff hoops here. It sounds like Mitch Kupchak and Buzz Peterson flew to Europe to scout Luka mm-hmm. Doncic, which uh, is a little surprising to me, um, you know, f- just from a budget standpoint, number one, <laughs> considering <laughs> the odds uh, that you have to actually draft that guy, which are, you know, 2%-ish, you know, to get up in, into the top three. Um, but they flew over there, saw Luka. I think, I mean, number one, it tells you, okay, we're doing our due diligence due diligence because we do have an opportunity to get into that top three in the in the draft lottery. And then number two, hey, maybe we're kicking uh, kicking around the idea of trading up. So I, I think everything's on the table, and I like that Mitch Kupchak is getting getting his hands dirty early. I mean, look, there are a lot of GMs in the league, a lot that that I don't think go to Europe. I just mm-hmm. don't think they do. I, I think they get intel from people and relationships and contacts they have over there. Uh, but I, I do think there are organizations that just like. We don't. We're not going to fly to Europe. We're not going to spend money on doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think this is interesting. It doesn't mean a lot, but I think it it means that Jordan is really committed to Cupcheck, and Cupcheck probably said to him, "Hey, I got to go see this kid. I just got to go watch him play. This is the way I'm going to scout." And he signed off on that trip, which ain't a cheap one. Yeah, that's true. And I, I like my assumption is they're just doing the, They're just making sure they've got their information at the the. Just, just like you said, Spencer, doing their due diligence. I assume that's what this is. This, is, but it's not a bad idea to at least scout a guy, start a relationship with him too. I mean, you never know what could, you know, what could facilitate years down the road or, or whatever. But it's impossible to not have the the gears in your head start turning. Of oh, is the, are they looking to move up into the draft? <laughs> Even though this right. guy's not, this guy's not going to fall outside the top two, and it seems completely unlikely that. Uh, any team that has you know above you know ten percent chance of getting a top two pick has any interest in moving off that moving off that pick. But I guess I guess you never know. So I, I assume this was just fact finding. But like you said, it's it's an expensive way. <laughs> it's an expensive trip to go to go watch a guy play. So it, it's interesting. Cupcheck yeah, must not know about our luck in the lottery or lack of luck in the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. He just um, doesn't care. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he knows, but hopefully he doesn't care too much. Have He's you, gonna change the look. Have you guys done? Have, have you guys uh, watched any or uh, like done any sort of scouting tape analysis of uh, Dunchit yet? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you think? I, I started last week. Um, I I like him. I don't yeah. think he's got. Uh, Actually, I really like him. I mean, he's he's number one on my board right now, right? Which we're yeah. we're gonna do here in a minute. Um, we're gonna give everybody uh, our top five. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. We give you guys kind of a view of what we're seeing in terms of draft prospects. I like him the most because um, I think he's the safest pick of the big five, if you mm-hmm. will. But I think there's not really a big five, but of the top eight guys that you can you can kind of vacillate between, um, I think he's the safest pick. He's a better athlete than you think he is. He's a lights-out shooter. Um, I watch film sometimes, Brian, and, and I get a little bit spooked because there's some Mario Hazonia 
yeah. in there. <laughs> you know, just I think Hazonia is a better. He's a more explosive athlete, right? He is. I agree. But Luca has a much better feel for the game. Uh, he's a smooth. I wouldn't describe him as explosive, but he's smooth. Uh, he can handle it out of the pick and roll. He can shoot. He's smart off the ball. He's a good rebounder. He's a, he competes. He's got a high motor, good defender. He's just one of those guys that you can't see failing because he mm-hmm. impact. He plays too hard. He's too high IQ, and uh, his skill level's too high, and he impacts every part of the game. I just don't see how he fails. Mm-hmm. And he's a big guard, too. Like, big guards that can run pick and roll. Like the, like you right. said, the the it's a really high floor on those guys they can they they're going to be in some way impact the game offensively and that's that's not even evaluating anything else it's just right off the top like if you're six five six six it can be a point guard with vision and run pick and roll and and score like create your own shot then then yeah like you'll play in the nba regardless of your foot speed you know right right i think he's got a chance to become um I haven't really come up with a good comparison, but he he reminds me a little bit of Bradley Beal in a lot of ways. I think he's got a chance to be better than Bradley Beal. He's bigger than Bradley Beal. Um, he's maybe as good of a shooter has the, the opportunity to be, but you know what he has that a guy like Beal doesn't is the ability to take smaller guys down. And and if he develops a post game, like now you're talking about Doncic being a you know eight time All Star. Because mm-hmm. everything else is in the cupboard offensively, um, but I mean, I, I think there's no question he can be a 20 points per game plus kind of guy for seven to eight years. Right. So are we, are we doing our list here, or are we just talking about Doncic? Yeah, right let's now? do it. Okay. Yeah. yeah, let's do it. I'll go first. So you know what I think about Doncic? He's number one. Uh, I have um, eight and number two. I don't mm-hmm. feel great about it, but I mean, there's not many seven one guys that can do what he can. I mean, mm-hmm. so much ability. Um. I have Jaron Jackson, three. He's probably my favorite prospect in this entire draft class. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I think he's going to grow. So that, that's why you have him at some... three, because he's your favorite? <laughs> well, I, all right, Rich. Well, well, yeah. you, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. He's risky. He's, right, he's so a little let bit me more, expl- Those yeah. two are safer, is what you're saying. I, I think so. Like, Donchis is my favorite, because I think, I think he's got a chance to be better than a guy like Jackson, just from an overall standpoint. I think Aton has the highest ceiling out of everybody. That's why he's number two. If, so, if somebody nails that one mm-hmm. and develops him, he's going to be the best player out of his draft class. There's no question about it, just because of his, you know, his ability. He's mm-hmm. 7'1", 260 pounds. I mean, come on. Um, and then Jaron Jackson, you know, 6'10". Again, like Doncic, he... he impacts the game in so many different ways that defensively he's going to be he's going to be a shot blocker um you know he's a good defender he can move his feet uh you know he he projects to be a pretty good three-point shooter um i I just i like i like guys that impact the game on both ends in a lot of different ways and have a high rating when it comes to win shares and Mm -hmm. jackson has that um four (laughs) is probably my biggest reach but i just love this guy michael bridges I, I don't know how he's going to fail either a lot in the way that Doncic uh, can't. You know, Bridges is not the on-ball guy that Doncic is. Never will be, I don't think. But a, a low usage, um, you know, high effective field goal percentage type of guy like uh, Bridges that can also impact the game in three, at least three different positional ways defensively, maybe four. I mean, I think that's a can't miss. So he's number four for me. And then five was tough, but I went with 
uh, Mohamed Bamba. Um, I'm higher on him than I think a lot of people are. You know, I think that he has the ability to become kind of a Miles Turner kind of player. Um, you know, I think he moves a little better than people realize. Uh, he's not an ex- he's not explosive off the floor as a shot blocker with his incredible length, which is probably the most bothersome trait that he carries. But here's another guy like Jaron Jackson, who if he develops that three point shot, is really gonna really gonna help evolutionize an offense at his size and also be a, a serious rim protector on the other end. So, um, you know, you just don't get many guys come around with with Bomba size so I got him at five but it was close between him and Wendell Carter Bomba number five okay um my yeah, my top go. five <laughs> NBA draft prospects well, well done very well done <laughs> my top five I got I got Jaron Jackson Jr. at number one uh, I like his crazy length crazy wingspan I think that's going to help him on both sides of the court uh defensively you know if you get a step on him it doesn't really make uh, much of a difference because he can recover. Uh, he averaged three blocks per game uh, at Michigan State. Uh, he's also very skilled on the offensive end, uh, can stretch it out to the three-point line. His shot's not perfect by any means, but definitely it translated because he shot 39% from deep. At two, I do have Doncic. I have not seen enough of him uh, to put him at number one. I know that the consensus among many sites, among many people, is that he is the top player. I do worry about whether or not, uh, kind of like Messina, like, you know, he's a European player that relies a lot on his smart, heady player. Uh, he, you know, his court vision is amazing. You know, he can handle the ball. He can pass the ball very well. But you just wonder if that uh, speed will translate over to guarding some of the bigger athletic freaks on the NBA level. But, yeah, he's a he's a solid prospect. Like you said, Spencer, he probably is the safest pick. Uh, he can shoot the ball. You know, that's probably why he is the consensus number one. He's, he's very safe in um, a lot of aspects in his game. For three, I have, I have Aiden, uh, just, you know, his amazing strength, physicality, uh, excellent finisher around the rim. You know, relatively quick feet for that bigger player. I can see him uh, doing a good job of guarding those pick and rolls, even at his size. Uh, the one thing that I do worry about is if he will be able to develop a shot, uh, even if it's just a mid-range, that, that would be great for his game. Uh, number four, I actually have Trey Young. Uh, this guy is one of those guys I think that could fall, but also he has a skill that I think translates right away to the NBA. You know, his unlimited range, his quick release, Anytime he pulls up, you know, in transition, it just reminds me so much of Curry. And I think that's the, you know, the obvious clear comparison there. But he definitely needs to get more physical on defense. And then number five, I got Wendell Carter. We've talked about him several times uh, on this show. And just, you know, he just has, he does a lot of things well. Great rebounder on both ends of the court. He's a good shooter for his size. You know, just does a lot of things well. And uh, whether it's passing, handling the ball, I guess the only issue is I just hope that he can play a modern five in the NBA because... If he can't defend the center, I think that uh, kind of uh, weakens his ability in the offense if you shift him down to the power forward. I, th- I think he needs to be playing center at the next level. But those are my top five. Jackson, Doncic, Ayton, Young, and Carter. Yeah, uh, we're, there's there's going to be a, a fair amount of overlap here. But yeah, I've got I've got Doncic number number one overall for all the re- reasons that have been that have been stated. He he's is really really interesting prospect and he looks like he could be a high level scorer for a long time. And I mean, those are just <laughs> getting guys that can play on the perimeter. You can count on to be efficient, high usage, high scoring guys. I mean, it just, those are the ultimate, 
the ultimate team building piece in the NBA, or certainly one of them. So if you can get a guy like that at number one, you go for it. Number two, uh, I've got DeAndre Ayton, and he look he's he doesn't come without his flaws, but man, he's got some. He has a really interesting uh, prospect profile. Uh, shot seventy two percent around the basket, sixty one percent on post ups, and not an amazing three point shooter. Um, you know, like mid mid thirties percent, thirty four percent, but a guy that looks like he could project to possibly figuring out a, a three point jump shot in the NBA. Which if you add it, add that to his presence around the hoop and in terms of his his size and his stature that that makes for a really really interesting perhaps dynamic offensive player number three triple j uh jaron jackson jr Uh, another one of those guys just it's his combination of shot blocking and three-point shooting that it's just it's an insane it's it's an incredible combination of skills that it feels like only now we're starting to see guys that work to put those two things together but yeah, Jackson, he blocked a block rate over 14% uh, this season, which is freaky. Top five in the country, I think, uh, according to Ken Palm amongst, yeah, number four nationally, according to Ken Palm, uh, in terms of block rate, which is which is incredible, and put up pretty efficient numbers out of the catch and shoot this season. Um, an effective shooting rate of 57% out of the catch and shoot for Jaron Jackson on over 70 possessions, uh, 1.14 points per possession. To get that to go along with his shot blocking, it, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, number four, and this is a guy that, boy, it, we've talked about him before. He seems like a guy that comes with a lot of mixed reviews, but I'm still putting Marvin Bagley up here. Um, I feel like I am, day by day, people are jumping from the Marvin Bagley island, and it might be just me uh, and some other Duke homers <laughs> at the end of the day uh, with Bagley, but... Look, I see all of the concerns, but I just think he's going to be used differently in the NBA. I'm feeling positive that he can figure out a three-point shot, and I just think he's going to measure well. Although I guess he may not measure at the at the combine, but I, I think there's the I think he has maybe the ability to 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 play some four. I'm probably on it again. I I might be the only one who feels that way too. But I just think this guy's talent, his ability to second jump. If he can figure out a right hand in a, in a jump shot, I just think he's got maybe that's and that those are two pretty big asks, but uh, I just I love his potential um, offensively. I'm not jumping off the the Marvin Bagley ship quite yet. And then number five, this one was tough because I, I love Trey Young and, and Bamba is another very interesting prospect too. But I went Wendell Carter at five too. Yeah. Um, I just I love similar to to someone like Jaron Jackson and Carter's not the same athlete in terms of foot speed and length that, that Jackson is, but a shot blocker that can step away and hit jump shots, an incredibly good passer. One of the best passing big mm-hmm. guys I've seen come through the ACC the last half dozen years, maybe the best, honestly. He's been unbelievable, and he knows he can pass off the short roll. He, he can pass out of the post. He can go high-low. Just a lot of high-level stuff. Feels like a guy that maybe you could even, you know, w- way down the road, a guy that you could run offense through at the elbow or, or something like that because he does have a little face-up game too. So I got Wendell Carter at five. I just I, I like his, his strength, his lower body strength defensively, defending out of the post. I don't. I, he probably has to play five in the NBA, but I think there's a chance he has the ability to get in much better shape and become maybe the type of athlete that can run with some fours and stuff like that too. But um, yeah, maybe I'm on an island with that too. But regardless, I love... Wendell Carter as a pro prospect. 
What's good, y'all? This is your boy Justin, aka Just Blaze, host of Above the Rim. And if you want a raw take on the NBA, Above the Rim is a show for you. With dope beats and entertaining guests each week, we offer a great new insight on all things NBA. You don't want to miss it. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Almighty Baller Network. This is a tough crop of players to try to rank. Um, I would say probably through about eight or nine of them. Um, I mean, there's just no clear... Well, it sounds like what most of us are in agreement that Doncic might be just a step above mm-hmm. the rest. But, uh, but I mean, after that, man, it, it good luck trying to figure yeah. out who ranks where. Uh, there are a lot of good players. I think a lot of guys that could start in the NBA mm-hmm. for a long time moving forward. But I can't get my arms around how many of these guys can become all stars. And and I don't know that it's I don't know that it's really a ton. Which which makes me scratch my head a little bit about this uh, draft because it was hyped. It was really, really hyped for a long time, and we might find out that that was uh, justified. But right now, I, I just I don't know how many all stars I see. So um, may, maybe a good break for the Hornets. Yeah, I, I felt better about last year's draft than this year's draft, yeah. even though yeah. that this class yeah. was hyped probably a little bit more than last year's. I don't know. I just think that as I've sat down and kind of looked at these players, not that I've done it as much as you guys, but just none of them like jump off the page to me. So yeah, I, I would yeah. I would agree, Spencer. These guys could be all-stars or they could be on the opposite end where they're just just a solid role player i'm not really sure it, right and we've seen that draft class i mean the the rookies have been really good this year mm-hmm. uh, even yeah. if you took even if you took ben simmons away from the pool and we're just looking at 2017 draft picks i mean donovan i mean i think every team that drafted in the lottery even with because monk closed the season so strongly i think every team that picked in the lottery last season could at least go into some go into the 2018-2019 season, feeling at least positive about their first-round pick. Zach Collins has come on strong yeah. for Portland, too. And, uh, I mean, Jason Tatum's been incredible. Josh Jackson did some things. I mean, Phoenix is a sort of a mess. But I, I just – I think yeah. – and, and Markel Fultz, I think – I mean, it's tough. He's been sort of played off the floor in this series uh, against the Heat. But the fact that he was able to come back and have some decent performances at the end of the season for Philadelphia – um, that's certainly better footing than where they were, say, two months ago. Um, and if he could figure out that shot, then he becomes the sort of special prospect that we talked about a year ago. So um, the, what, Spencer, you were saying this a second ago, how you don't see, perhaps don't see future stars, future all-stars. I tend to agree with you there. And I th- also agree that that may work out in the favor of the Hornets because they just got to get a player this summer. Yeah. Like, no matter what, no matter what direction the franchise is going to go in this summer, whether it be... Uh, we're going to hunker down and we're going to try to you know, build around Kemba beyond 2019 or whether the move is we try to trade Kemba and that's how we move salary around and that's how we start this rebuild too. Regardless, whomever you take with likely with the 11th pick, although I suppose there's a small chance it could also be the 12th pick, you just you just got to get somebody that can help. And so if it is someone like Michael or Miles Bridges that maybe doesn't look like a star but could be a starter, a rotation starter for, you know, a decade or you know five to ten years, whatever. Then that's great, and that mm-hmm. that is a pick that should be celebrated. You just got to get something. You can't you can't come up with a with a zero in the in the drafting from the lottery again this year. Yeah, and and look, the way the game is changing and how everyone's trying to build their offense and and 
you know, a certain way and how everybody's trying to draft that versatile wing that can guard numerous positions, um, you know, that changes the evolution of the entire draft. And I think mm-hmm. we saw that a lot last year. Like, listen to some of these names that were picked after out of the lottery. First round out of the lottery. Josh Hart, Kyle Kuzma, mm-hmm. uh, OG Ananobi, Jared Allen, Terrence Ferguson, who's played some minutes for OKC. He probably needs more in the playoffs right now, if you want to ask my opinion. Yeah. Um, John Collins. Um, Justin Jackson ha- had his moments. I don't know. He's going to be great. Bam out of by. I mean, Bam was the last Bam. pick of the lottery, actually. But um, I mean, listen to some of those names in the first round. I mean, when's the last time we had that many guys picked outside the lottery in the first round that came in as rookies, as rookies, and played serious minutes? And some of them played started. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ananobi might be the most important piece for the Toronto Raptors on the wing mm-hmm. right now for their playoff push. I mean. Today's a huge game for the Raptors, and they got to answer some defensive questions. And the Wiz are hunting DeRozan every time down the floor. And Ananobi, man, like, he's the answer. If they want to slow Washington down, and especially moving forward in the playoffs, that guy is the answer. They've got to get him on the other team's best player and find a way to keep him glued there. The Hornets just got to get one of those guys. They just got to find a way to make sure they get this one right. It doesn't have to be an all-star, but it's got to be a guy like Ananobi, or like a Josh Hart, or like a Kyle Kuzma, right? They could come in, give you energy on both ends of the floor, and make a difference. Just make your team better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a quick question yeah. thinking about the 20, because I've thought this a few times recently. If you were to re-pick the 2017 NBA draft, and let's say you had the first pick, you were you were Philadelphia, would you still take, Would you? T- my question is, would you still take Markel Fultz? Would you take Donovan Mitchell? Or would you maybe take someone like Jason Tatum? Tatum number uh, J- one. J- Jason Tatum. Tatum. No, I, yeah, Tatum. I think so too. He was so good this year, man. I mean, he was so good this year. He he is what everyone's looking for. I mean, that's yep. what I was just talking about. Ago, that mm-hmm. six eight wing that can do so much on both ends. I mean, he he's a guy, and I think, you know, I think Doncic he doesn't have the athletic and physical ability I, I think Tatum has, but he's as close as you're going to get on the wing in this draft class. I and think. I think, by the way, t- in terms of win shares, Tatum, and he played 80 games, so that matters, but Tatum was a seven wins player this season. For a rookie, for a 19-year-old rookie, that's insane. That's just absolutely, I, I'm, I would need to play with filters a little bit, but I bet he's in a pretty exclusive company in terms of Rookies that have been seven win players. Donovan Mitchell was a five and a half win player. So think about that. The difference between those two guys. Um, it's it's the, crazy. It's it's really impressive to me. The two big red flags with Tatum when he was leaving Duke last season were can he finish at the rim in the NBA, which is something that he had some issues on at Duke. And and you know he he can get to the rim, but he certainly had he he has not shot an amazing number inside the restricted area for Boston this year. So I think that's something he can work on. And then defense was the other big issue with him, you know, the sort of the wild card. And he's been totally competent defensively for Boston. I like he never has con- to guard the – Sorry. I thought another concern was like he was just too ISO heavy at Duke as well. Um, yeah. I, I, I always wonder, like just sitting back looking at it, why did he drop to three? Like why – I just don't even know. Yeah. It, and that was one of the things where like a year ago I was like an NBA – he's just so much better suited to play in an NBA offense than a college offense. Yeah. Even well, even a sort of like more modern egalitarian offense like Duke, uh, it, it just a lot of like mid post isolations. And in the NBA, playing for a team like the Celtics, like you're never going to get that look if you're right. playing the three or the four for them. 
Yeah, and it's I mean, Richie, that's a good point. It's it's interesting with these Duke guys here in these in the past few years. Kay's not getting he's not unlocking a lot of what they're capable of mm-hmm. in terms of its overall potential. And that I would love to do a piece on that and some research and and Brian probably knows anybody because he's been around that team a lot. But I mean, we're on like prospect four or five now, where it's like, wait, they can do this. Yeah, you know, when they get to the NBA, and and it's. It's a little, it's worrisome, but it's also not too surprising because the one and done guys, like you just, you don't have the time to spend with them on skill development. You got to teach them the system and cut them loose as athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I kind of get it, but at the same time, like this is the guy who coaches our national team. How can, how is he not getting more out of these players you know, when they're with him for a year and then get to the NBA and you get a guy like Brad Stevens and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, I had no idea Jason Tatum had this kind of motor. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's interesting. It is. But, yeah, I, I mean, great question, Brian. I, I would take Tatum. Is that what you said as well? Yeah, I would take Tatum, okay. although Mitchell, Mitchell's interesting yeah, uh, as a possibility pick. for that number one pick. Yeah. Um, all right, well, you guys want to talk some playoff hoops here to wrap it? Yeah, let's do that. All right, let's do this. Let's let's run through every series and try to spin. <laughs> Actually, maybe we should do what Lowe does on his pod. I know, this is, I know Richie's like, we're not going to be able to do this. But – I'm going to put a timer. We're just going to copy Zach Lowe here. Four minutes on each oh, series. All right, so we almost get like a minute 15 each. Yeah. Wizards, Raptors. Clock has... Oop, there goes my timer in the background. All right, here we go. Wiz, Raps. Um, <laughs> game four today, really big. I think that Toronto's just got to answer some questions defensively. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Offensively, they worried me in game three. The ball started... Uh, the Rocks started pounding. They didn't move it. The dribble penetration was cut off. Give Washington credit. Um, the Raps weren't able to find that corner, which we were talking about earlier in the episode. But defensively, what is Toronto going to do to slow down Bradley Beal? I mean, it was just so easy for him mm-hmm. in, in game three. And coming off those pin downs and down screens, there just wasn't the attention to detail that, uh, that Toronto had in games one and two. And Washington's effort was better. But OG Ananobi, again, defensive answer. Uh, I I don't know who they're going to de- depend on to really slow down Beal. It might have to be Ananobi. Uh, thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, you know this series looked like it might be a, a sweep for Toronto before the Wizards sort of turned things around uh, Friday night back home in uh, at the Capital One Arena. But, you know, the Wizards are taking a ton of mid-range long twos this series, like basically as mid- like maybe even more from the mid-range now than from from beyond the arc. But when they're going in like they were the other night for for Brad Beal, it's tough. As you said before, we even got to this segment, man. They're just targeting DeRozan defensively in 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 going at him as they should. DeRozan's not a very good defensive player. Like that's sort of the one area of his game he's never nailed down. I still feel good about about Toronto. I don't think Washington's bench can keep playing as well as it has. And I think Toronto's will start to play better. Um, so yeah, nah, I, I, I'm not too worried if I'm a Raptors fan, but uh, it would be interesting if they lost game four and went back to Toronto two two, which <laughs> going against wheel and going against wall and Beal. I mean, I- anything is uh, anything's possible, I guess. Hey, like, like they say, uh, a series doesn't start until the road team wins. The uh, the Wizards have you know held pace in terms of winning on their home court. It might just be one of those things where the Raptors have got to outscore them. You know, it just seems like all these games have been uh, shootouts here, so it might be mm-hmm. difficult to kind of slow things down with uh, with Beal. So Raptors might have to be uh, you know especially good on the offensive end. Cleveland, Indiana, yeah, Cleveland defensively. I, I have no clue how you're gonna 
if you get by Indiana, that's it. Because this team is so hopeless defensively. Uh, it, it's it's comical. I think their best shot is what they're doing, which is being aggressive, blitzing and trapping Oladipo. Mm. They're not even just blitzing and trapping him when he gets it out of pick and roll. Like They're blitzing and trapping him basically when he catches it anywhere. So mm-hmm. Cleveland's almost in like a matchup zone kind of look a lot of times because they just cannot guard the ball. And uh, and I don't know, man. I think Rodney Hood should be starting. Maybe that's just me. He's been disappointing, but Corver ain't the answer. If, if, mm-hmm. if starting and, and J.R. Smith isn't either. Like I, you know, I know J.R. Smith gives you punches here and there of energy and offensive production, and you know, guard the ball hard every possession here and there. But he's not the answer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would start Hood. I think that's that's really going to be the difference for Cleveland and Indiana. Um, who can Bogdanovich continue to be uh, a real aid offensively? I mean, he played out of his mind in game three, but Oladipo is going to need help in this game. Turner needs to step up and do a little bit more. Thaddeus Young's got to give him something because Bogdanovich isn't going to have an out-of-body experience um, every game in the series, and the Cavs have committed to taking Oladipo out as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, – I mean, I, I can't believe how much trouble LeBron's having – with Bogdanovich guarding him, uh, maybe not trouble is not the right word, but Bogdanovich is challenging him in uh, in some interesting ways. And according to NBA.com's matchup feature, LeBron just nine of twenty-two on attempts when Bogdanovich has been matched up with him. Way better, ten of thirteen versus Thad Young, nine of fourteen versus Lance Stevenson. But just like seeing Lance Stevenson back in a playoff, like a hype playoff atmosphere, is just. You never know what he's going to do. The, the guy is absolutely ridiculous. But, uh, man, it's how good is Victor Oladipo now? I mean, oh, who wow. – it's crazy. And we saw him play the Hornets in the, the penultimate game of the season. He, he was doing the same thing to the Hornets, just playing downhill. The way he ramps up and just sprints off these ball screens or when they don't bring a, a ball screen up and they just let him go one-on-one ISO, which maybe they should do with Cleveland trapping these pick-and-rolls so much. But Oladipo's been incredible, and 35% of his possessions in the postseason this year, pick and roll, 58% shooting, 63% effective shooting. Um, that going into this weekend, that was number three in the NBA playoffs behind only Paul George and DeRozan. And, um, yeah, he's just been unbelievable. And through the first two games, he was 11, 8 of 11 in the restricted area. Just getting to the rim, Pacers continue to get to the rim, and Oladipo's been outstanding. Um the new starting lineup with Love, LeBron, Love at the Five, George Hill, J.R. Smith, and Kyle Korver was awesome in Game Two, and had some decent moments uh, early on in, in in Game in Game Three. But they they need way more out of that. They're they're in trouble. Um, this team outside of LeBron is really not that talented. It's interesting when like teams make like a midseason trade. It always seems like those newcomers that come over to the new team like do well because they want to prove themselves. But like right now, you're seeing that you know LeBron doesn't have his little sidekick, and he need, definitely needs more from the other players. But it just seems like whenever you make a midseason trade, those those players come over and they perform pretty well, especially early on. But when it's down to the nitty gritty and it's time to perform, uh, none of them are stepping up really. Yeah, that Lakers trade doesn't look so hot at the moment with Clarkson and uh, I mean, I guess Larry Nance has had some moments too, but and he does he does a lot of good things that don't show up in the sort of generic box score. But Clarkson's been way off in the postseason. They need way, way, way more. They need scoring. Like he's just he's got to hit shots for them. Um, this is and sort they, of what yeah. people were worried about at the time of the trade was did Jordan Clarkson make enough shots to move the needle at all off the bench? 
Cleveland's the worst offensive team in the league in the playoffs right now. Offensive rating of 96.9. Can't and happen. they just they can't it can't happen. happen. I mean, that's that's how they're gonna win games. Mm-hmm. Their their defensive rating actually isn't that terrible, but they're just slowing the game down. I mean, so mm-hmm. that that's that's anchoring that defensive rating down, but like LeBron has got to involve other guys. It can't mm-hmm. just be walk it, walk it down, hunt a switch, and then him hold it for 12 seconds and then either make some throw somebody a, a hand grenade or take some fadeaway shot. It's it's got to be more creative. It's just just there's no excuse. I know he's the best ever, but this is not enough. So Yeah. Uh, they're they're playing too slow. They're last in the playoffs in pace. And they're shooting under 31% on catch-and-shoot threes. I mean, this, that's the recipe for disaster if you're Cleveland. Like, they've, they've got to be hitting 38 40% of their threes and playing somewhat passable defense to have a chance. Like, that, that's the only way. Um, I will also say, I think it's been interesting to see Indiana getting some utility out of Miles Turner and uh, Sabonis together at the same time. Like, I think that's big for the future arc of the Indiana Pacers if those two guys can play next to one another um, maybe for the next decade because they're both they're skilled players, no doubt. All right, we went long on that one, so we'll try to make it up somewhere yeah. else here. Uh, Boston, Milwaukee. Uh, first thing I'll say is this. Boston, really good defensively since Brad Stevens has been there again this season. They're 14th in defense right now, 114 uh, rating against a Milwaukee team that eh, I wouldn't consider one of the best offensively in the league. <laughs> um, no, no, the they've <laughs> they've been sliced up. The attention to detail has been surprisingly not great. I think Game Three told a lot about this series. I think that you know, Games One and Two, Boston had to scrap and claw, especially Game One to get get out. I was surprised they were up 2-0, and then Game Three was like varsity against JV. I mean. Boston's got to figure out where their offense is coming from, and I'm not sure that they can score enough to get past Milwaukee in this series. This might be the one series that starts 2-0 and, and really changes in the other direction. Mm-hmm. I could see Milwaukee storming back, take a 3-2 lead or something like that. They just feel like the more complete team, and the Bucks are also – they're just a momentum team with Giannis and, uh, and Brogdon back, a guy like Middleton. They're a team that doesn't play the most inspiring offensive basketball. They're good defensively for the reasons that are obvious, but – if you give them momentum and you give them confidence, they're really good. And when yeah. and when they're able to grab and go and play in transition as they were in game three, I, I just don't see a team like Boston be able to slow them down. So I think I'm almost ready to say I give Milwaukee hmm. um, the edge down 2-1 in this series. They have the best player, you know, and Giannis has been incredible. He's shooting 87% at the rim and shooting percentage of 68%, high usage, high assist rate. I thought it was promising that they got good Jabari Parker minutes. I mean, he's been pretty bad since he, you know, since he came back from the injury, especially on the defensive end. And he got worked, especially by Al Horford in, in games one and in games two. I thought it was positive that they not only got good Jabari, but he and Giannis played well together. And including the Cavaliers, I thought there were two teams Friday night that badly missed Kyrie Irving. That being the Cavaliers versus the Pacers and the Celtics versus the Bucks. Both teams needed his shot creation. I think the biggest thing with uh, Boston is just not turning the ball over because I think that just leads easy, to easy buckets with the Bucks. You know, they're, I guess, top five in the NBA, maybe even top three in terms of transition 
uh, points. Uh, they just get up and down the court. Uh, so Boston's definitely, I feel like they do have to push the pace a little bit, but they got to be careful with, with the way they handle the ball because if they do turn the ball over, that's just going to uh, wreak, ha- wreak havoc for them on the other end. So I think that uh, I wouldn't give the edge to the Bucks uh, like you are, Spencer, but uh, they definitely got to take care of the ball. Yeah, no question. And we got a few seconds on this, so I just want to add Milwaukee, uh, you, you just struggle to find a whole lot of perimeter defensive um, liabilities for them. And I think when they're going up against a team like Boston that has a lot of question marks offensively, where is their offense going to come? How can they you know, beat their man off the dribble? Rozier's extremely streaky player. I just think with Brogdon back, it really changes the look mm-hmm. of this Bucks team. I just think they're really, really good defensively now. Uh, if Parker will just show up and give you – you know, 80% of what he can do. I mean, they're hard to beat. They're hard to beat. I think they're a good defensive team. So, um, all right, let's see. Uh, last E series, Philly, Miami, Philly up three, one. Now, um, they just keep coming at you. I mean, with Reddick and Bellinelli, Bellinelli, by the way, is he, is he one of the best buyout, uh, yeah. candidates in like the history of the NBA? I mean, I mean he and Ilya Silva, both of them have been yeah, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. It's, it's incredible. So I, the, they can play so many different ways. They can run. You can post Simmons. You can run floppy action with Bellinelli and Redick and put mm-hmm. the defense into a complete anxiety attack. I mean, there's just so many different ways they can beat you. They're just versatile, man. I like Miami. I think Miami's really good. I thought after game two, Miami had a damn chance to win this series. But for Philly to go down to Miami and take games three and four, like that is a big-time statement. And I think they end this thing in game five. They, yeah. they just... They're one of those teams like Villanova in the tournament, much different, differently built, but they just keep coming at you in waves, and you can just almost you can only absorb so many punches, and they're just tough, man. I don't like. I'm almost ready to like have the conversation about Philly in the finals. Dude, I I think there are a lot of people. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm um, I'm getting there. Uh, it's been they've been incredible and having him beat back i mean he, he had a, he's had some high turnover games but who who cares like what a monster that guy is and so far in this series the heat are three of 14 shooting against joel and beat at the rim uh a robust 21 percent. so and in beads in he's blocking shots he's influencing shots he's been incredible those lineups where they have Bellinelli and Redick on the court, like good luck chasing those guys around a million screens and handoffs and stuff like that. Saric is a superstar, like in the making. I, I love Dario Saric, and I think he's a guy that I think he, at this point, I think he might project to be an all star. Um, just been a, a knockdown, cold blooded three point shooter, badass defender, good cutter. Um, and the lineups with he and Ilyasova at the four five, they've been awesome. And when they play those two guys, Plus Simmons and um, and Redick and Bellinelli it, with with Sarge and Ilyasova, like good luck defending any of that. And Ben Simmons is incredible. He's better than I thought he was going to be. And the way he controls pace in the middle of the court is is absurd for a rookie six ten point guard. Yeah, I, I feel bad for Miami because they, they come out and compete, uh, but that pretty much was the nail in the coffin for Game 4, just you know winning both of those games on Miami's home court. Uh, Justice Winslow has actually kind of impressed me a little bit in this series. I haven't watched every minute of it, but he's he's impressed awesome. me. But yeah, Simmons is just a beast and in terms of how he can handle the ball, post people up, and that one play late in the uh, fourth quarter of Game 4 where he took the pick and roll. It just seems like the, uh, the Red Seas just parted, and he just had that monstrous mm-hmm. dunk real late in the game that almost sealed the game for them. So it, um, I, I think yeah, go ahead, Brian. 
just that's that's JJ Reddick's gravity. That's why you paid twenty three million dollars to get that guy. Josh Richardson's worried about him coming off a flare screen from Sarge or Ilyasova. I don't remember who it was, and because of that, Whitesides pulled up to the opposite elbow, and and or maybe it was Embiid, and it just the lane is cleared for uh-huh. Simmons. I mean, it's just a beautiful play call by Brett Brown and the Sixers. All right. Uh, and the last thing I want to add to this one, I'm trying to run the numbers right here. I'm not all the way through, but I'm pretty sure Philly six in offense, six in defense, uh, the only other team in the playoffs in the top six in both categories, Golden State. So mm, yeah. there you go. They're pretty efficient on both ends against a pretty damn good Miami team. All right. <clears throat> um, also, if they, get, the, if they get yeah. wounded Boston in round two, like, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, it's, talk it's about blood in the water. Yeah, yeah, it's a cakewalk from there, um, or at least to the Eastern Conference Finals. All right, uh, let's go to the West. Starting now, we will start with Golden State and San. Or excuse me, no, no, no. Let's start with Houston yeah. and Minnesota. Um, I'll tell you what, watch last night, and out of the three things that I've really taken note of in this entire playoff so far, it's that Houston's a totally different team. Mm-hmm. Even in games one and two, the, the offensive explosion is not there. Chris Paul and James Harden are pounding the rock. The ball's not moving as much. Minnesota is collapsing to uh, corral Harden and they are welcoming him to throw the ball out and pretty much saying telling Houston you're going to have to you're going to have to make those threes that you're so known to to hit but they're taking Harden away last night was case in point I thought it was one of the best defensive performances against Harden all season of anything that I've seen um and look give Minnesota credit they shot the eyes out of the ball I, I think they cannot sustain the way they shot the ball last night I think it was like 15 or 26 from behind the arc and got you know production from guys like Derrick Rose they're not going to get off him but tell you what they've got a good defensive blueprint the Rockets I think are a little bit flustered and mm-hmm. other than CP3 and Harden it looks like a bunch of guys that don't really want the ball very much uh, Eric Gordon's got to step it up I'm worried for you yeah I am too especially because I I had I loved watching this team this year. I thought they were the best show in the NBA. Um, of course, outside of when Frank Kaminsky comes in for the Hornets. Outside of that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean Eric Gordon can't Eric Gordon can't buy a shot. They miss, and I don't think he'd be the. I don't think he'd solve all of their issues. Obviously, but they clearly miss Luke Richard and Bob Mute in his his two way play and his corner three point shooting. They got Ryan Anderson back last night. He hit four threes in eighteen minutes. But, um, man, like that, that didn't they, they hit their catch and shoot threes last night and it, and it just wasn't quite enough, um, in part because Minnesota perked up and hit 15 of 27 threes, um, four or six from Jimmy Butler. Uh, he was he's been amazing and has done a hell of a job on, on Harden when when matched up. And I don't know, Chris Paul foul trouble last night was big for them in game three. And uh I guess you know, like you said, it's just it's a lot of two man game or or one on one game with them. But they've been even doing some pick and rolls with with Harden and, and Paul just to get the matchups they want or to get CP3 going four on three to the hoop. That was big a bigger priority in in game two. But yeah, I think you're. I'm disappointed. I thought I was hoping they were going to come out and just run past Minnesota. And this series has been it, it's been weird. I was hoping to see more from Houston. I haven't been watching much of the Western uh, Western games just probably because of the time. And uh, obviously this one is a 1-8 matchup, so I felt like this was going to be a boring boring series. Uh, so, Spencer, you're telling me that uh, Chris Paul and Harden are turning into Lowry and, and DeRozan in terms of playoff basketball? 
<laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Huh, okay, yeah, I, I haven't watched much of this series. I just had it all in the background, so I really haven't been paying too close attention to this one. I, I just assumed that Rockets would take it in four or five, so, uh, but you're, you're, you guys act like it's a little bit more concerning for the for the Houston Rockets, or are you just saying in future rounds? They just don't look right, man. Yeah, right? they don't look like, right. Yeah, man, they, they played all season with this swagger of, yeah. man, when Harden and Paul are out here, like, you guys don't stand a bleeping chance guarding us. Yeah. And um, man, that that has not been. They just they just they look a little uneasy. Now we we should throw this in there. Minnesota's not your typical eight seed team. I mean, they, they were no. top four in the Western Conference for the majority of the season. Top five in offense. They have multiple all stars on their roster. Um, I mean, they're not a great. They're not. A, they're not. I, I wouldn't say they're one of the the five best basketball teams in the world, but they're probably in that in the like the second tier beyond that when when they're yeah. right. Yeah, they don't look right. I agree with you there, Brian. And you're right to say that Minnesota is not your typical eight seed. Um, a few things. Number one, Carl Anthony Towns took it to Houston last night. Mm-hmm. I think he realized himself, oh, 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 yeah, these guys have no answer for me. Like, mm-hmm. I have to attack. Um, that's number one. Number two, a key piece in this series is Taj Gibson. Um, and here goes Thibodeau laughing at everyone that told him that was a bad signing. Last yeah. summer, um, Taj Gibson is a key piece in these pick and rolls because he can stay with Harden. He had mm-hmm. one possession last night where you know Harden gets the switch, he dances, he does all his stuff, and then he picks up his dribble, and Taj doesn't go for any of the pump fakes, and he, he stays with him, and then he blocks the shot or gets a piece, and it goes shot clock violation. Not many, as a defensive five, Gibson's one of the best in the Western Conference, especially when you're playing a team like the Rocks and having to deal with Harden. So... That's the only thing I would add. I don't know what's going to happen with the series, but Minnesota's back in it. Mm-hmm. All right, two seven, Golden State, San Antonio. Let's cruise through this one. There's not much here. Uh, yeah. I've actually seen less of this series than any of them. I don't. Um, I'm not surprised that Golden State has come out and showed a different gear than they did late in the regular season. They baited everyone in, rocked everybody to sleep, and Clay and Durant are <laughs> just sent killing from, it. Clay, Clay yeah, is sent from a it. different. Yeah, He's they're, they're sent from a different planet, just like they are, are every playoffs, and it, they're going to end this series today against San Antonio. I would agree. Yeah. Um, I agree. It's just one last thing. It's a bummer that this the last few years we've gotten Spurs, Warriors in the playoffs, and both the series have been so depressing. Like, no Kawhi, um, no Curry, and then obviously the tragedy with Popovich and, and his wife, and it's just – it's. You, yeah, it's, it's not it's not what you wanted. In 2015, you were dying to see Spurs Warriors in the playoffs, and we've gotten it twice, and both times it's been just not what, not as good as it should be, or not as joyous of a basketball experience as it should be. And I think a lot of people right. think when they think Warriors, they just think this offensive output, but like it's really their defense that's just shutting down the Spurs, and it's just that's why Spurs can't get anything going. They're you know the Warriors defense is just amazing to watch. Just they are yeah. just connected, all, all five players on the court. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like you take Curry off the court and you become like a top ten offense, and as opposed to the number one offense, but then you become like the best the or best. second the best yeah. team in the NBA. In the NBA, by the way, Clay Thompson shooting seventy one percent on catch and shoot three pointers in the playoffs. I mean, come on, twelve of seventeen. What a freak! Come on. Yeah, Golden State number one in offense, number two in defense so far in the playoffs. I mean, yes, they're playing the Spurs here, who are I mean just limping at this point, but. It's impressive, as it always is. All right, um, Utah, Oklahoma City. Um, this is probably the best series, I think, in this first round. Mm-hmm. I think this is destined to go seven games. We'll, we'll find out tomorrow, see how Oklahoma City responds. But um, playoff Rubio, 
Uh, I, the guy is a different player. I, I just love the fact that he's not hesitating to let the threes go. Like he's like, all right, you're going to play off me. That's fine. But I'm going to let this thing go. Shot five of eight in game two. Last night went nuts. Um, I don't have his final line in front of me, but he was awesome. He was going past Russ, getting great from the mid-range, kicking it out. Utah had Oklahoma's head, head spinning defensively last night. And uh, you know what this team was able to do with Rubio and Donovan Mitchell as, as you know, combo ball handlers, combo guards. Well, Rubio is a true point guard, but Mitchell is a combo guard. It's just a godsend for the Jazz. And mm-hmm. how they're able to be effective also with favors um, and go bear on the floor with favors just going at Carmelo when he gets an opportunity. I, Oklahoma's be- best chance here defensively is to switch a lot, which they did more last night. But uh, I don't know, man. Utah looks really, really tough right now. Yeah. The uh, Does Joe Ingles ever miss – threes from the weak side of the court, like in the corner, feels like he makes literally those 100% of the time. And yeah, I've never seen the, it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're always there off the pick and roll with when Gobert or Favors dives and, and he's spaced to the, 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 the wide side of the court. I mean, just a, what a weapon for them. Um, and such a key connection piece for them offensively. But uh, and Donovan Mitchell's been incredible. I mean, what he did down the stretch in game two, he basically single-handedly brought them back. Favors has been... Such a linchpin for them against Melo. I think he's been dominant on the offensive glass, and he's even hit some threes for them that have been huge. And I'm just so impressed with what Utah, Quinn Snyder, and this collection of players have done. Um, And another head-scratching game for Westbrook last night. I mean, the guy is just – he plays basketball in a way that's just crazy and unlike anything else you see in the world. Um 33% 33% usage, eight turnovers, five of 17 <laughs> shooting. I mean, it's just he plays basketball at a thousand miles per hour, running into everything. And it, it kind of works. Like it's super important for them. I just don't, it's just not really like a healthy brand of basketball, you know? Chaotic. He's yeah, such yeah. a character. Did you guys hear his uh his soundbite after the game concerning Ricky Rubio? Yeah, yeah. I might I might insert it into this episode. It was he he never disappoints when it comes to interviews. Rubio got hot, especially I think from mid range. I think he started five for five. Just what allowed him to get so hot there? Uh he made some shots. Um, you know. Too comfortable. Um, but I'm gonna shut that shit off next game though. Guarantee that. So that and that puts a lot of spice, adds a lot of spice into Game Four. But this is a fun series, and yeah, Ruby. I mean, Rubio's so good. Russ, uh, you just got to hold your breath, like you said, Brian. Yeah. Um, all right, last series, New Orleans, Portland. It's over already. <laughs> Four nothing fouls. <laughs> who who saw that coming? Uh, not definitely me. not me. Look, Drew Holiday, AD is what AD is, and Rondo, and the way they push it has made him even more effective. If that was possible, but. Drew Holiday, holy shit. I, I knew he had more in him, you know, than he showed these last two or three seasons and injuries have played a big part in that. But the guy looks like one of the top ten players in the NBA right now. And it's mm-hmm. it's unbelievable what he's doing. He's unguardable. Uh, he cooked Lillard, cooked McCollum. I mean, whoever you put on him, that guy in the mid-range, step back off the glass. Um, he has a nasty pullback crossover dribble and then a, in a quick step acceleration towards the rim i mean i just can't say enough about drew holiday i'm really really surprised that this is who i'm watching but i'll be honest with you man golden state might get curry back for round two doesn't sound like they'll have him ready at the beginning of round two but Mm -hmm. that series is going to be damn competitive yeah i agree Uh, i I absolutely agree it's gonna be um it'll be fascinating to see 
the type of effort Holiday might be able to put forth on, on Steph Curry. And the you know, I could also say on the flip side, the Warriors have some guys to throw at Anthony Davis. But and yeah, here we go. Damian Lillard, eight of thirty-one shooting on possessions defended by Drew Holiday in the playoffs, only four of fifteen on threes. And boy, oh boy, the way the way the the Pelicans trapped this guy out of the pick and roll, uh, Damian Lillard, that is, they just took him took him off. I mean, Lillard had an All NBA season and. Man, a lot of the goodwill he built up, a lot of it vanished pretty quickly. Um, and I hope that's not too hot takey because Lillard's obviously amazing. But <clears throat> this was not a really impressive showing in the playoffs for him. It's amazing to me to see just how good New Orleans has been with Anthony Davis as a spread five. I mean, my word. With Anthony Davis and Miritich on the court in this series, 120 minutes, Pelican scoring over 121 points per 100 possessions, allowing under 102 points per 100 possessions, a net rating of over 19. I uh, just amazing, and it does go to it does make you wonder a little bit with Cousins heading into free agency. You know what you know, they're going to bring him back if Anthony Davis wants him to be brought back, but it makes you wonder like, man, Anthony Davis full time as a spread five is unstoppable, mm-hmm. and um, you know he played according to Basketball Reference. You look at their positional breakdown. He played. About 50% of his time at center, 50% of his time at, at power forward. And it was clearly they were using these minutes with Diallo and signing Emeka Okafor almost to just, you think, like eat innings, like for a baseball reference. And now Davis has just been, he's played every second in the playoffs as the center. And with him playing free safety off Alfaro Camino and just disrupting everything in the middle of the court for Portland, it, it was amazing. That guy is a monster. And uh, I'm fascinated by a Golden State Pelican series. Um, one last thing real quick, and then I know we got to go, Richie. Um, I was wrong earlier when I was trying to give Philly love. Um, I said them and Golden State were the only, the only two teams top six in both offensive and defensive efficiency. New Orleans, number two in offense, number five in defense. So mm. that's how good they've been. Wow. And, uh, Insane. Yeah, they're really good. They're really, really good. Big questions for Portland coming. Will Terry Stotts get fired? Uh, is is uh, Yusuf, is he a restricted yeah. free agent? Yes, he is. He is a restricted free agent this summer. That will be interesting. Yeah. Not only will, will New Orleans care about matching it, but who's going to even throw something out there? Yeah, I think I think there's a good chance Yusuf Nurkic might be very disappointed with what the uh, free agent mark. It's not going to be what Hassan Whiteside got two years ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, Safe no. to say those days of... of uh, or Ennis Cantor. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's crazy the way things changed and that window closed so quickly on, on some of these guys. And, and Nurkic is skilled, you know? But yeah. Yeah, Well, the players had a chance to slow yeah. this money coming in. They decided to take it all at one time. Yep. So this is what you get. All right, um, I think that's it. Richie, I know we got to go. That was fun. I'm glad we got to talk some playoff hoops. Do not forget, we are a proud member of the Almighty Baller Podcast Network. Check out almightyballer.com for tons of other great content across the NBA. Check out queencityhoops.com. I said at the beginning, lots of draft content coming. Uh, And then Sports Channel 8, our good friends over there, where we got Brian from, uh, radio show. It's their next big thing. It's the next big thing in North Carolina sports, to be honest with you. 99.9 Saturday mornings, 10 a.m. to noon in the Triangle area. Make sure you check it out. For Richie, for Brian, for myself, that is episode 61. We'll see you guys next time.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.